Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, letter of Paul to the Romans in the New Testament. We're going to use Romans chapter 5 as our primary text. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit because we are working on a topic. We're thinking together about how we work. And we think about it uh, biblically, and, and honestly, when you think about anything biblically, you're going to get what's true. And what's true is not always easy to take in. We started by talking about how work is good. Now, for some of you, that's a little hard to swallow. It's hard to think that what you have to do for a job should be something you're thankful for. You can be thankful for the money, you can be thankful for the opportunity, but are you thankful for the work itself? Ha, ah, hard pill to swallow. Then, last week, we talked about how this work is fallen. It's broken. We live in a world where the things that God made and made perfect have corrupted. It's a house that's condemned and groaning. And again, uh, the scriptures just say a lot of true things about the ways in which your work is thorns and thistles. I say that because God put Adam and Eve in a garden, and yet when they fell, when they disobeyed God, he pulled them out of the garden, he also cursed them. They go from living in a perfect, God-designed, just absolutely, uh, you, you think not just about the perfection of form, but the perfection of, like, experience. Everything in that garden was good to the sight and to the taste. And he takes them out, and instead of that perfect place, they have to raise their food through Thorns and thistles, the opposite of that verdant, perfect garden. Yeah, I went through and I tried to describe it to you. And honestly, I may have gone a little far. I think some of you said, hey, I hate Mondays, but why make it so depressing and like senseless and Ecclesiastes-ish? It just feels so meaningless when you say it like that. And then, you know, I tried to pull the plane up towards the end. Maybe not quick enough. I think some of you just hit the mountain. So today, we're going to think a little bit more about the resurrection truth. The wholeness of the gospel is not just good world that has fallen. It's good world that has fallen that then God has impacted through Christ. So we're going to think a little bit more about that resurrection and how the promise of the gospel does make a way for us to work. Work that is fallen, but work that is not pointless. Work that's not fruitless, work that is not hopeless. So how do we go about that? What are the ways in which work can work? We're going to have kind of a two-parter this week and next week where we break down just a, a tasting, just a sampling of some of the ways that Scripture says your work in Christ will work. Now, the first thing I want us to understand is that we have something we bring to the world when it comes to how a uniquely Christian mindset is beneficial towards work. And there's a lot of people that are really good at what they do, and a lot of those people have no regard for God. So it's not something you can just prove that a Christian will always be better at their job than a non-Christian. We can't prove that, but we can show certain things that the, the gospel, that the scriptures bring to the workplace that you can bring to the workplace that other people don't always have the equipment for. One is that we have a standard of what is right and what is wrong. You, when you understand the gospel, are going to be bringing to the workplace a, a, a vision, a purpose, a meaning. 
that not everybody has because you have a standard towards which to work. Here's what I mean. In Romans 12, I know I said Romans 5, we're going there, but just for a second, in Romans 12 it says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Do you see how he's describing two poles there? There's something that is evil and there's something that is good. I think most people would say that that's true in a very general sense, but we have a crystal clear picture of what those things are. It allows us to run from and run to. It gives us a very specific direction and encourages a great deal of speed. He goes on later in that chapter to say, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what is good. Don't take too quick a a jump over just how valuable this is, that we begin with a picture of how things are supposed to be. You know, the first week we talked about how work is good. Last week we talked about how work is broken. You having both of those eyeballs in your head to see both how things should be and why they're not allows you to say, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to fix it. And that's not something that the world necessarily has. I think culturally it's hard to establish what's really right and really wrong. Certainly, culturally, we have a lot of stuff, maybe even more and more stuff that we declare is wrong. And some of that stuff's really helpful. Some of it maybe goes too far. But you can understand why there would be a difficulty in knowing exactly what's wrong and exactly how far we need to go in trying to punish the people who represent these things that we now think are wrong when we're not really even sure what the good is. What's the standard that we're shooting for? While I do think there are some things that culturally we agree are wrong, I think it's very difficult for us to say what is truly good. Consumerism? Pleasure? Self-actualization? We can fill in those concepts, but I'm not sure that anybody would say, much less everybody say, that one of those things represents what's really good. And that's a problem. A guy named G.K. Chesterton, really funny guy, he's dead now, he was a Catholic writer from England. He said, the modern man says, let us leave all these arbitrary standards and embrace liberty. He's saying that sounds really great, but you don't know what liberty is. It's just a word that you use to not have to say what is the good. So he says this, logically rendered is, let us not decide what is good, but let it be considered good not to decide it. Now, if you don't think that's funny, totally fine. We'll just keep going. Uh, This isn't always for everybody. I, like, eat it up, which is why I quote it all the time. And he says, the man, the modern man says, away with your old moral formulae. I am for progress. This, logically stated, means let us not settle what is good, but let us settle whether we are getting more of it. He says, neither in religion nor morality, my friend, lie the hopes of the race, but in education. This clearly expressed means we cannot decide what is good, but let us give it to our children. There's a point to the jokes. He's funny because he's just saying things, I think, that are true. If we don't have a clear idea of what's good, how can we progress towards it? If we don't know what is right, how can we teach it to the next generation? You and I do hold before anything else, before means or skills or anything else, you and I do hold a golden view of how the world should be. So I I hope to, I'm not necessarily smart enough to, but I hope to organize the points that I've got from kind of an abstract down to a concrete in the hope that you'll see 
that if you don't have anything else, at least you have view. You have vision. Jesus came and he brought sight. You also have a uniquely Christian idea of humility. Giving you sight, one of the first things you see is yourself. <laughs> and it's not very flattering. This same Chesterton guy famously was asked to write an article. They had all these different you know, intellectual lights in the UK write their, their view on, their essay about what's wrong with the world. And Chesterton sends back his answer. And it just said, To whom it may concern, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And then he didn't write anything else. He just said, what's wrong with the world? Me. He didn't say humanity, which is true. He said me, which is humility. It says, I see my sin. Before we go any further, we have to understand how the gospel impacts how we work. This is why Romans 5 is so helpful. It says, Therefore, and we'll unpack that word briefly. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. How are we supposed to be working? How does your work Work, you do it for the glory of God. That's point one. And again, it's extremely abstract. It's kind of a difficult thing to nail down. So we're going to spend a little bit of time trying to figure out how you do that. How do you do what you do for the glory of God? Do you just say in Jesus' name at the end of every workday? How is it? that your job and the way that you perform it actually goes about glorifying God. Well, it says in this Romans passage, the gospel. Understanding intimately the gospel is what's going to allow you to understand how you go about your work for the glory of God. You have a job, you have a standard, you understand something about yourself. In the gospel is this picture that there is a perfect, there is a thing that we should have, and there is a broken there's a thing that we don't have. There's a reason that the world is messed up. And there's a solution. Every worldview has to have all three of those pieces. In Christianity, we see it right here in Romans 5, 1 through 2. In Romans, you have the first four chapters that are giving you a beautiful picture. as a dark picture of humanity and its brokenness. And then a beautiful picture of God's salvation that he has for us. And the way that that salvation is accomplished by faith rather than works. Then, in Romans 5, you have this summary statement. And when he puts it all together, he says that we've been justified by faith. And then he says we have peace with God. That means that our primary problem and the solution that Jesus brought, our primary problem is relational. It is a relational problem between us and God. What Jesus came to solve was that relational problem between us and God. Tim Keller, guy that wrote that book, Every Good Endeavor, that we're leaning on heavily as a resource for this series, he says, the biblical worldview uniquely understands the nature, problem, and salvation of humankind as fundamentally relational. We're made for relationship with God. We lost our relationship with God through sin. And we can be brought back into that relationship through his salvation and grace. Yesterday, 
got the kids in the car with Rachel, and we're driving away from the house. And as we're backing out of the driveway, you know, you see the house. You're going backwards. You're looking at the house. And I was just thinking, we've only been there a year, and we're really loving the new place. And I say out loud to the kids, oh, my gosh, why would God let people like us live in a house like that? Now, you have to sit here. You don't have to. I mean, you could leave. But generally, you come here half an hour a week. And this is like a studied best-case scenario. Imagine what it's like for my children who just hear all these kind of half-cocks, half-baked ideas that come flowing out of my head as I'm sitting there thinking about, I think that kind of the gospel applies in this way, blah, 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 and then just all over them. And they have to do what they can to kind of stay above water. In this case, I was giving them probably not a great gospel encounter. I mean, I'm, I'm encouraging them to be thankful, but I'm encouraging them to be thankful for a house. But the way I phrased it, fortunately, left me open to be instructed by my children. Because I said, why would God let people like us live in a house like that? And then from the back, tiny voice, because he loves us. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, of course. And the car like swerves as tears fill my eyes and I start to <laughs> praise God. Of course. It's not a house. It's God's love. All these blessings come down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow due to change. He does. He gives me this blessing, this place. But if he takes it away tomorrow, what's the blessing? If I get to live in it for another 50 years, what's the blessing? Is it a house? No. It's the love of God. So then I need to understand my house differently. Is it God's primary blessing towards me? No. If he takes it away, does he take away my life? He makes me live in somewhere less convenient, less spacious. No. Because he's given me what I really need. He's given me his love. If I can make that gospel transition to understanding that my primary need is really to be back in connection with the Lord and that through Christ, by faith, I've been justified and I'm now allowed to stand again in this grace, then that gospel message means that everything else around me gets used in a totally different way. That house then is a way for us to show God glory. Let's take this and apply it to your days, to your job, to your work. What he's saying in Romans 5 is that you have been justified by faith. You have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ. You've obtained access by faith into a grace in which you now stand, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. You have God's grace. You have his love filling you up. Now, as you go about your life, as you go about your work, you do it for the glory of God, recognizing that your chief end, your big job, your greatest blessing is to be His. So you work for His glory. You enjoy Him, and on His behalf, you go about your work His way with His power 
for his glory. I want to think for a second, and again, we'll get more practical, especially next week, about how this looks. But I want you to think about how you would glorify any other organization. As soon as we say you're going to work for the glory of God, you go, okay, Bible words, and you kind of glaze over a little bit. Let's think about it the way that you think about your company. When you work at a company, you want to see that final stock price of your company go up, not down. And there's kind of ways in which your company goes about that. Now, I have, (laughs) hold on, I have a business degree from a state university. So I understand this stuff at a very high level, (laughs) I assure you. But as I see it, you can kind of break things down into like the marketing sales side and then like the operations side. You have the people that tell the wonderful things this company can do for the world. And then you have the people who are hopefully doing the wonderful things this company can do for the world. When you think about the church, and I say working for the glory of God, I think many of you kind of assume the marketing side of things. You assume the the talky parts. Where somebody comes up here and just says or sings or prays the gospel. And you assume that it's your primary job to just sort of get some customers in front of the marketing team. Yeah, forward the email. You know, post and share the post. Okay. Yeah, that's part of the organization. But there's also the operational side. And this is where a lot of us fall flat. This is where the sacred calling stuff, I think, begins to speak. Because if the world is hearing a message that Christianity is true, that we have a standard of good and evil, that we have a way in which people can be reunited with God and feel real peace and real hope and real grace from the God, then they got to see it. i got to see it. The way you go about operating in God's world has to display that message. So we say you're going to work for the glory of God. That means that you do have to work in his way. You have to show a real, lo- a, a real amount of love in the world. It may just be a little, but you have to. You have to show a, a real amount of, of patience in the world. Oh, my gosh. I went yesterday to a place. I won't name the place. But I stood at the little pickup line. We've already paid. The order's ready. I can see it. And they don't make eye contact with me. And I have a choice. Am I going to like stomp my foot, you know, ring the bell for service? Am I going to shout? Am I going to get right in their face? That's what I wanted to do. (laughs) Or do I just, you know, hey, I got nowhere to be. Obviously, they're working. You know, if he's on his phone, that's one thing. But, you know, he's doing stuff. Maybe this is an opportunity, a tiny, tiny, tiny opportunity, which is still more than enough for my integrity but maybe a tiny opportunity for me to show a little bit of patience. Now, again, the guy didn't say, what God do you worship? This patience is unbelievable. It's miraculous. I haven't sent customers. Don't act like this. No, of course not. Of course not. But I'm understanding in that moment that I have a God and that God has acted towards me with an incredible amount, an ocean amount of patience. Should I not show patience? You know, somebody's driving like an idiot and you just immediately think that to yourself. You create a standard for that person and then you then immediately break that standard when you drive. 
Think about that. The next time that you get upset with somebody, I'm not saying you're wrong, but hold on to that standard you're holding them to and see how long it takes for you to break that standard in your own life. That's why parenting is the worst. Because as soon as you tell your kid not to do something, you just think about God saying, yeah. Hey, you really need to be nicer. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, would it kill you to be patient as you scream at the child to be patient, right? There's a, an incredible amount of buffoonery, of hypocrisy that happens in your parenting. And God is saying to you constantly, don't you see? Don't you see why you need the gospel daily? And wouldn't that humility, what's wrong with the world? I am. Wouldn't that humility glorify God? Because they don't see some operation that turns out perfect people that are able to paint themselves with an impeccable sort of face for the world. No, they see real people who are really loved and really forgiven, even though they really aren't that great. Yeah, you show a little bit of love. You show a little bit of humility. You have a different standard, a different view of what should change in the world. And if you're going to work for the glory of God, you need to have God's priorities. Here we're getting a little bit more practical. It says in Isaiah 58, 6 through 8. And this is just a, I'm just picking out this one section of scripture. You could see it all over the whole of the scriptures. You read Isaiah, it says, Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? What was happening was the people were fasting. And fasting means to go without something for the gospel. Now, generally, for, for the glory of God, to worship God, generally it's food. And, you know, generally people don't really do this very much. It's very difficult to do. You kind of have to have a community that pushes you to it. You kind of have to have some discipline, something in the back of you that says this is worth doing to actually go about it. I think for many of us, if you found out that somebody in your community was fasting regularly, you'd be pretty impressed What's happening in Isaiah's time and the people he's preaching to is that they were going about a fast. They were doing the formal fast. And yet, God was rejecting it. Here's why. They're fasting, but they have lives that have no concern for the social justice in the world. He says, isn't this the fast that I would prefer, that I would choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? There's so much here. We're not doing a series on social justice. There's so much here, but just see the, the principle there. He's saying, hide yourself from your own flesh, meaning that you would see in a homeless, naked, poor person that they have the same image of God that you do, that they have the same claim on value and importance that you do, even though you have clothing and a home and importance. That's a Christian mentality. You see it in the culture kind of echoed and shouted back at us. But it comes from us, the Imago Dei, that there is an actual human value to humans because God made them in his image, regardless of what they do with that image. They still have it. He continues, verse 8, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. 
Now, we sit in a, a time that has, you know, people around us that have reacted and overreacted and underreacted to verses like this. Before we, we react against other people or other positions or other political, maybe, platforms, just let the verses say what they say. God does care for these people. Yeah, they made some terrible choices, but I've filled the sermon. Forgive me for talking about myself so much. I filled the sermon with my own terrible choices. Shouldn't we be do-gooders? Doesn't the, the working for the glory of God look like caring for other people, doing something that does provide some kind of good to the world? Give me a good or service, you know. I mean, we're going to broaden out that concept. Come back next week. But shouldn't it at least not hurt? You know, you have stuff like uh, Bombas. I think that's the name of the company. You know, you buy some socks and they give some socks away to homeless people. You buy some underwear or shirts and they're apparently really nice, you know, work great or whatever. Great. And then they give some away to other people. Whoa. Love it. Even Stevens. I did not like the concept of even Stevens when I first heard about it because they say, you buy a sandwich, they give a sandwich. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know that I want the kind of sandwich that they're going to be giving to homeless people. If I'm going to go buy a sandwich, I want it to be a nicer sandwich than I could make a bologna sandwich at home or whatever. And just total ignorance, didn't understand what's happening. It's a great place. They've gone through some restructuring. I'm not sure they still do this, but the concept was there. You buy a sandwich, they give a sandwich. Shouldn't we be in this kind of a mentality? I know everybody's job doesn't directly connect like that, but shouldn't we have that kind of desire to bring goodness to the world in the way that we would just define goodness? You know, you go back in the, the history of the world, things like social workers or teachers or doctors, they, they come about because it's just kind of in the human spirit, but they come about and they're directed towards everybody, not just paying customers, but everybody because of the gospel. I love that we have so many social workers, teachers, and doctors at Hope Church. But again, there's, there's a way in which everybody's current job, I'm not saying you should stay in your job, but everybody's current job is going to be bringing this about. Come back next week. We also work to the glory of God by working with a hope that endures suffering. One of the clearest ways, and we're almost there. We're going to go do the Lord's Supper in just a second. One of the clearest ways in which the gospel impacts your life and shines through your life to the world, the way you're going to glorify God in your work is the way that you're going to handle adversity. Look at what the gospel does in suffering. It says in verse 3 of Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Not only do we have this unbelievable, miraculous, eternity-altering gospel relationship with God through Jesus, not our own works. Not only that, there's more. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And that endurance produces character. And that character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. <laughs> you, through the gospel, have the ability. God has given you ability to work in a grateful, joyful, gospel-changed heart through all the ups and downs. Hey, if we're going to say what the Scripture says about how broken work is, 
then we need to have the ammunition. We need to have the, the prayer, uh, preparedness. We need to have the plan in place for dealing with suffering. Does your life display the gospel by the way that you react towards suffering? Yeah, we weep with those that weep. It doesn't mean that we call suffering good, but we do rejoice when suffering happens because we know that God, through this suffering, is producing something. He's building in us something. Some endurance. Some endurance that results in some character. Some character that produces hope. I'm not talking about optimism. Yeah, we're thinking everything's going to burn. I don't know how optimistic Christians are, but we have hope that this world is groaning, but it's groaning hoping to be remade. It's groaning with pangs of child... I'm referencing what we talked about last week. With the pangs of childbirth, that something new is coming, that we have this hope, and this hope, it doesn't put us to shame because God's love, there it is again, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. So let me just ask you, what is your heart? What's your heart? Do you have a heart that's been tuned in to this love? You've been attracted to it? You've tasted and seen that it's so good? It's what you want? It's what you're going after? Oh man, if so, then working for the glory of God is is exactly what these verses say. But if not... And especially, you can see this in your work. Let me challenge you with Christ's words. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your heart is, there your heart will be also. You can work for a lot of things. You can do it for a lot of reasons and you can go about it in a lot of means. But where's your heart? Is your heart just to build up some wealth? Is it to build up some identity? Is it to build up some uh, fill in the blank? Or is it working through God's love, understanding the gospel with all of this hope? Is it for his glory, for heaven? Now, the way in which you're going to actually kind of take that apart and start trying to apply it to your job in finance, to your job in architecture, to your job at the USDA, to your job to wherever, whatever. We'll talk about more. There's a lot in the scriptures about it. But it's never going to go further than this gospel proclamation. God's glory. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we're preparing our hearts now to take the Lord's Supper. Just like baptism, Father, the Lord's Supper reminds us of what you did in the gospel, the way that you provided this good news by providing your son to be a sacrifice for us. His body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. We're sinners before holy God. We can only be forgiven if we will trust in Christ's sacrifice for us. So I pray this morning as we think about the big topics of your glory that you would help us to see our heart before you, Father. Do we love you? That's really a question about whether or not, Father, we have experienced the forgiveness that's depicted in this Lord's Supper. And so I pray, before anybody comes to take this Lord's Supper, that we would ask ourselves very carefully and very honestly, do we know the Jesus that Hope Church is preaching out of this Bible?
If so, Father, let us take the Lord's Supper, examine ourselves carefully and take the Lord's Supper. If not, Father, I pray that they would just stay seated and continue to think about, to wonder about, and maybe even to speak to you about coming to know you through Christ. Lord, we pray that you would please give us the grace to work hard for your glory this week. Teach us how to do it, Father. And as you teach us how to do it, glorify your name. We love you, sir. In your holy name we pray. Amen.